This is Michael Gebert. This episode of Nitrateville Radio is about Kino Lorber's Pioneer's First Women Filmmakers set. We'll be giving away a copy of this six Blu-ray or DVD set at Nitrateville, and I want to invite listeners of the podcast to enter for it, too. Here's how to put your name in. Register at Nitrateville. That's super simple. We just need a username and an email address. You'll have to be activated by a moderator. We do that to keep the spammers out, but that should happen within a few hours. Find the thread for the drawing and post in the thread your pick of a favorite film from a woman filmmaker. Doesn't have to be from the silent era, it can be from any time. Then keep an eye out for the drawing on November 27th. Now, enjoy the show. What one sees in this collection is a a view of the world that we missed for almost a hundred years after women really stopped being prominent in the filmmaking industry. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. It's 2018, the year of the woman. So why were there more women filmmakers in 1918? As Kino Lorber releases the six-disc set, Pioneers, First Women Filmmakers, we'll talk to Shelley Stamp, who curated the set, and George Williman of the Library of Congress about finding and preserving films by women filmmakers. Keep up with work like this that changes how we look at movies by never missing an episode of Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And now... Miss Jones, take a letter. Imagine if, in all the talk about a woman becoming president that we've had in recent years, there had actually been a number of women presidents in the early 1900s, and we'd all just forgotten the fact. That's ridiculous, of course. But it's not that different from the situation with women filmmakers. We talk about glass ceilings still to be broken in Hollywood in 2018, yet a century ago, The movie industry was full of women directors, writers, editors, even studio heads. That's the forgotten history that Kino Lorber's 6-DVD and Blu-ray set Pioneers, First Women Filmmakers, wants to bring to light. Launched on Kickstarter in 2016, the set was curated by Shelley Stamp, professor of film and digital media at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the author of A Study of Lois Weber. I spoke to her recently. The whole project came together with um, Brett Wood, who's the producer at Kino Lorber. And he and I had been talking about doing a box set of Lois Weber films. I was totally on board for that. Um, Everything uh, I had done up to that point was about promoting the work of Lois Weber. Um, But in the midst of us starting to talk about doing a box set on Lois Weber, He was finishing the African-American Pioneers box set. And that set was so fantastic and was so well-received and sold so well that um, Kino Lorber said, hey, let's think a little more ambitiously and move beyond just uh, a box set on Weber and think much bigger. (laughs) Uh, And let's see if we can do a box set on... um, many more female filmmakers from the silent era. And so Brett came back to me and said, hey, we're reconceiving the project. Do you want to, uh, are you on board for a bigger set? 
And I said, absolutely. So that's kind of how it came about. So at that point, uh, as you started thinking, did you pretty much know what would go into the set? Or was it a matter of sort of digging for people that nobody really had thought about before? I mean, I had some idea. Um, but I did, I needed to do some digging to see what was available. I also um, got advice from other people, uh, other curators who were very knowledgeable and other film historians. So I went to Marianne Lewinsky and asked her for advice. I went to Alison McMahon, who knows a lot about Alice Guy Blaché, and asked for her advice. I went to Jane Gaines and Kate Sacone from um, Women Film Pioneers Project. So I I did my own research, but I also relied on a lot of other people. Um, so we had to figure out what was available, what's in good shape, uh, what can we get, um, and and we and we expanded from initial idea of five discs to six discs. So we had so much material that we actually had to expand the original idea. And even still, there was a material that we couldn't include because there wasn't enough room. There was material we couldn't include because we couldn't get the rights. Um, so there's way more out there even than what we were able to to include, um, which is kind of amazing to think about. The, the breadth and the scope of the work um, made by early women filmmakers is really extraordinary. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, what uh, obviously... The set starts off with Alice Guy because pretty much movies start off with Alice Guy There That's are many people right. who are in it before she is. Um, but yeah, let's talk about what was the position of women filmmakers at this, you know, at the earliest point. Right. Well, I mean, that's, I think a lot of people are surprised that there are, that there were so many women making films in the early days. And because Proportionately, there's more women making films, more women in positions of creative control in the early film industry, I think really even than there are today. And so people always say, well, what, you know, how come that was? And I feel like the right question really is why not? You know, the early film industry um, was incredibly open. There was a, a tremendous demand for films as the industry took off. Uh, in the early 1910s, during the Nickelodeon boom. Um, you know, Nickelodeon theaters, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, changed their programs at least several times a week, sometimes daily. And so there was a tremendous demand for films. So someone that had a, a little bit of, uh, of enthusiasm for the industry, uh, a little bit of gumption, a little bit of money, a, a few ideas... It was easy to get a foothold in the industry because there was a, such a tremendous demand for product. So number one, that's one reason why women were able to enter the industry in the early years. Another reason would be that in the early years of the film industry, the kind of um, there was a kind of fluidity between different positions. There wasn't a rigid separation between working as a screenwriter and working as a director or working as a performer and working as a director. There was a lot of fluidity between those roles. And that enabled a lot of people and women in particular to move from initially acting on screen to directing pictures or initially writing scenarios or writing um, scripts to directing those scripts that they were uh, working on. So there was a much more fluidity. It was a much more of a sort of artisanal industry where people could move between positions. It wasn't as rigidly hierarchized as it would become. So that enabled uh, a lot of women to work in the early industry. Um, and then I, I think a third reason is that as movies became more popular during the Nickelodeon boom, the industry was kind of fighting its initial reputation as a kind of cheap, tawdry commercial entertainment. Uh, and as, a, as part of a way to do that, the industry was courting white middle-class viewers and was very interested in having women working behind the scenes as a way to legitimize the industry, as a way to give it some cultural cachet, uh, as a way to attract female audiences. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why the early industry was really open to women in these early days. Um, uh, really a, a, 
really amazingly open to women. You know, there's that uh, story that I've read that women were involved in editing from early on because it was seen as a you know sort of related to sewing and other <laughs> sort of craftsy things, which is a little too perfect and urban legendy to me. Do you, do you, but do you think there's some validity to that? Well, there it is true that women were involved in um, uh, coloring early films and uh, cutting and putting together early films because women were associated with that kind of work, right? The fine handwork. I mean, it is true. Um, so there, you know, in that sense, women have always been involved in film production from the, from the get go, you know, as colorists and cutters. Um, and, and some of that does involve a kind of stereotype of the kind of work women can do. Um, women that worked as filmmakers, um, that was sort of less traditionally associated with women. But I have to say that the, the women who did work as early filmmakers were very vocal about how suitable women were to that profession, right? They, they, did, they laughed at the idea that it was not a suitable profession for women. Um, and in fact, went out of their way in interviews to make a case, not only that filmmaking was a profession that women ought to to be involved in, but some of them even went so far as to say women actually are better suited to filmmaking than men. Uh, women make better filmmakers than men. Um, both Lois Weber and Alice Guy Blachet made that argument in a different ways. Um, Alice Guy Blachet said, really, and again, she's sort of appealing to stereotypical ideas about femininity, but it's an interesting argument. So she says, well, if you think about it, women are um, have a greater emotional intelligence than men. She didn't use that word. That's our contemporary word. Um, and that that insight into the emotions is a key talent that directors have to have to direct actors in performance, right? This idea that, that women are more in touch um, with emotions and therefore are better at directing performers. She said women have a, a greater visual sense um, and that that too is key to this new moving image medium. Um, and so she made she made a really interesting argument that women are actually better suited to filmmaking than men. Something I was just thinking too is that they kind of predate the stereotype of what a film director is. I mean, yeah. if, if the, the yeah. cartoon image of one is a guy with a German accent screaming at everybody, you know, wearing jodhpurs, right, they're, right. they're like 20 years before that comes along. So right. they really are sort of coming at it from a different idea of what the job is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They're defining it on their own terms. I mean, that said, there were filmmakers like uh, Elsie Jane Wilson and Ruth Ann Baldwin who did wear jodhpur, who did wear pants to go out and direct. And there were pictures of them directing and, you know, comments in the fan magazines about what an unusual fashion choice that was for women and how they, um, onlookers, when they were shooting on location wearing trousers, were shocked. Um, but, but, to their credit, Universal, where both of those women work, said, no, actually, this is an appropriate outfit. If you're shooting exterior locations in a rugged location, you need to dress appropriately. Um, but, but yeah, the idea of the, the director as this kind of hectoring male voice with a megaphone screaming at people um, was not the model that, um, that female filmmakers used. Now, accounts of them directing all say, you know, if you if there's accounts of many of them directing, and they all talk about how dis, how decisive the women were and how in command they were of their sets. So it's not as if they were um, shrinking violets. But I think you're right that they're sort of defining the idea of filmmaker and film director on their own terms. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, as you say, women approach film in a different way, approach stories and and that's certainly true in the content of a lot of them weber i suppose the most obvious example her subject matter really is sort of tailored to a woman's point of view i think somebody like alice Guy Blachet, it's much harder to pin that down because she just made so many films that you know you can find evidence of anything um, but you, tell me what you think about that you know what is there kind of a woman's point of view in their films generally I mean, yes, there there is a tremendous range of films in this collection. And that's part of what's so exciting about this collection is that 
there isn't a singular point of view. There's a tremendous range of the kinds of films being made, you know, everything from um, Hollywood productions to amateur productions to ethnographic film, right? So there's an incredible range of films that are in this collection um, and an incredible range of types of films, uh, you know, social problem films, action adventure films, melodramas, comedies, right? There's a huge range of films. But I think that what one sees in this collection is a view of the world that we missed for almost a hundred years after women really stopped being prominent in the filmmaking industry. So what you get in these early films are films that by and large foreground female protagonists, female characters are at the center of almost all of these films, right? So female characters, women's experience in all of its variety is at the center of most of these films. Um, Many of these films feature women um, in uh, active roles, uh, whether they are um, serial heroines, sort of action-adventure heroines who are saving the day and doing amazing physical stunts, you know, leaping from uh, water towers onto moving trains or um, that kind of action-adventure heroine, uh, driving a, 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 a... dog team across the frozen tundra to save her sweetheart. There's, there's that kind of woman, but there's also women in these films who are, um, uh, heroines because they are defying cultural norms around femininity or around, um, marriage and ideas about femininity. There are female heroines who are active agents in, um, social change in their communities, um, who are, defying norms in in other ways. So so there there's an incredible variety, but what unites the films I think is an interest in um not just stories that center female protagonists, but that that feature women in um active roles. Uh, it, defined very broadly, right? From action adventure heroine as active role to um melodramas which which feature women um, as social agents of change. All right. Well, let's let's go through some of the filmmakers here. Obviously, number one is Alice Guy Blachey, Um and it focuses uh, just by the dates. I, I'm assuming it's all pretty much Solax films. Um, I know Kino already released a set that included a lot of her earlier work at Gaumont. Yeah. So we so this set focuses um, only on American okay. uh, filmmaking, which is why the Alice Guy Blachet material is from her later work um, in the U.S. Um, there's there's a, a whole nother multiple box sets that could be done of, you know, women working internationally. So we focused on American women to, to kind of um, try to limit this set. And the Guy Blachet, so the Guy Blachet films are from her American work. They're from this period where she, um, after she came to the U.S. and kind of reinvented herself, right, um, set up uh, an absolutely state-of-the-art filmmaking studio in Fort Lee, New Jersey, to make uh, the Solax films, um, and really reinvented herself. And I think what you see in the range of films um, that we've included from this period of of her work is the way is her incredible visual sense. Um, and some of these films are absolutely gorgeous. Um, falling leaves, the, the lighting in falling leaves is absolutely extraordinary. Um, but again, I think you see the way in which she, her films are featuring female protagonists in active roles. If you think of two little rangers, right? These, uh, two young women, um, in the West who, uh, gun toting young women, lasso toting young women in, in out West who save the day or women who, who defy gender norms um, and and defy ideas around marriage, right? A Fool and His Money is a really interesting film. One of the, the first films to feature an all-African-American cast. Uh, and it's a film that, too, I think, looks at – it looks at class. It looks at um, uh, norms around marriage um, in a way that's that's really – Interesting. Another great um, Alice Guy Blachet film that's that's on this set is Algie the Minor, um, which is a film 
where a male protagonist is center, but a queer male protagonist, um, a man who goes out west to learn how to be a man. Um, but it's a film that really looks at gender norms and really looks at the kind of limited conception of masculinity that doesn't include Algy the Minor. Um, it's a it's a really interesting take on on masculinity using the genre of the Western and using the kind of conventions of the Western to really make a larger point about um, about gender norms. It's it's a re and it's really interesting to, to to look at Algy the Minor alongside the Two Little Rangers, which is the her another Western about two young women. Um, and in both cases, the, the setting of being out West, the freedom of being out West um, is a is a place where gender norms can be ex explored. Yeah, it's really odd that she's making revisionist Westerns almost before Westerns exist. I don't know how that's quite possible. But... Right, right. And, and as a French woman, right? It's still, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's still relatively new to the U.S. And she's already taking on this, I mean, a genre that's at this point well established in literature and, you know, live shows. But, he, but as you say, not especially well established in film. And she's already taking it on and she's already redoing it, um, which is amazing yeah all right well then uh disc two is lois weber um and as you say you that's a subject you have some interest in uh yeah tell us about about lois weber in that time i mean to me she's one of the ones who is interesting not just because she's a woman who happened to be directing but really is one of the best directors of the teens there's no question of that i mean it should be regarded with alan dwan and maurice turner and whoever else you talk about that way Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Lois Weber, very close to my heart. Um, and, you know, as I said, this project sort of began with the idea of um, showcasing her work, which has been really hard to see. You know, there's a few discs that are out there and there's um, more and more coming out. Um, Milestone just released um, Shoes and Dumb Girl of Portici, which are fantastic features. Um, but yeah, I, w I still really wanted to include on this bigger set the full range of work that Weber did. And so we include a number of her shorts, which she made uh, early in her career at Universal when she was running the Rex brand, because I think the shorts are fantastic. A lot of people know Suspense, which is on the set, really a kind of extraordinary answer back to D.W. Griffith's Last Minute Rescue films. But we also included uh, a bunch of her shorts, which have never been released before, which I think are um, extraordinary. Um, from Death to Life, um, about a set in ancient Greece, about a scientist who is um, develops the power to freeze life, and he freezes his wife accidentally. Um, so it's about the sort of danger of, of um, hubris, really, male hubris. Um, but also um, Fine Feathers, one of my absolute very favorite Weber Shorts uh, has not been available for quite a while. A really an extraordinary film about um, an, a male artist who paints two different portraits of a woman um, who is first his maid and then becomes his lover. And it, it's, a, it's a film about the way that images of women circulate in society, commodified images of women circulate in society. It's really extraordinary. Another short we've been we've included that that has not been available before is the Rosary, based on a popular song um, set during the Civil War era. Really extraordinary um, matte shot work using a circular rosary to frame images of the Civil War. And then we've also included um, some incomplete films. That was one of the things that Brett Wood, the producer, was really open to from the beginning, was including incomplete films uh, as, a, as a way to, to really help fill in the, this missing picture of the kind of work women did. So some of the Weber films that we've included are incomplete, like Sunshine Molly, uh, a film that she made when she moved from Universal to Bosworth. Universal, she wasn't able to make features initially at Universal, so she moved to Bosworth, where she was able to make features. Um, she made Hypocrites, which many people know at Bosworth, but she also made an extraordinary film called Sunshine Molly, which doesn't survive in its in a complete form, but we included um, some of the surviving footage from Sunshine Molly to give you a sense of this film that she makes, where she plays a woman working in the California 
oil fields. And it is a film about sexual harassment in the worst workplace and sexual assault. Uh, really a kind of extraordinary, extraordinary topic for, um, for 1915. Um, we also included another um, incomplete film from later in Weber's career called What Do Men Want, which is um, one of the films she made at her own production company. It's actually the film that caused Paramount to drop their distribution contract with her because it's so radical. Uh, it's, I think, a critique of bourgeois marriage. It's a critique of capitalism and um, masculinity. It sort of links up uh, a kind of desire for profit and capitalism with a desire for sexual conquest um, in a pretty radical critique of what men want. Um, so, so there's a great range. Weber, there's a, I think Weber is very well represented in this set. Uh, everything from her shorts to her social problem films to her more intimate looks at um, marriage that she makes later in her career. Yeah. Now, uh, the third disc kind of represents a shift. It's called uh, Genre Pioneers, and here we're starting to get into women just taking on you know the the meat and potatoes of hollywood filmmaking here uh, a couple of different serials you've got one with uh or episodes of hazards of helen uh with helen holmes there's some with grace canard and uh and then we get mabel normand who people do not think of as a director although i believe she's the first person besides charlie chaplin to ever direct charlie chaplin i think has to be thought of as as an important voice in creating silent comedy as as a result because she was directing a lot in that time so yeah let's talk about you know women doing genre you know sort of -of run-of-the-mill material what do they bring to that yeah absolutely um mabel norman is is really fascinating case because you know if people know anything about silent cinema, they tend to know silent comedy. Um, and they tend to think of Chaplin and Keaton, maybe Harold Lloyd. Mabel Norman is usually forgotten in that equation. Um, but her, the work that she was doing at Keystone, including, as you say, directing Chaplin in some of his very, very first performances as the Tramp, is absolutely essential. Um, so we've included several of Mabel Norman's films where she directs and stars, and they're films uh, where you see what an incredible uh, comedy d- director she was, period. But also, I think, the way that her films take on uh, gender and gender norms, right? We, we see film, the film uh, where she is with Chaplin, uh, Caught in a Cabaret, is I think a great exploration of class, of, of dating norms. Um, the film Mabel's Blunder, she is uh, in drag. Um, and she disguises, she plays a, a woman who disguises herself as a man in order to spy on her beloved. Um, so that she's really thinking about um, gender norms and dating norms in a way that I think is really interesting, on top of which she's just um, demonstrating an incredible facility as a comedic performer and a comedic director of, of both Chaplin and uh, Fatty Arbuckle. We see her directing these very well-known um, male comedians. Now, as far as serials, I mean, that, there's action. That's essentially a, a you know thought of as a male genre, not entirely accurately by any means uh and to some degree i would say a, a bit of a juvenile genre it was one of the things that brought kids into the theaters uh but women were you know of course the famous pearl white you know is the name that people remember but there are a lot of women stars of these kinds of serials how did that come about yeah so that they're called the serial queens right um the uh, Pearl White and Grace Kennard and Helen Holmes. Um, and they're, they're famous for the physical stunts they did for the kind of action adventure. What is less known is that stars like Grace Kennard of, and, and stars like Helen Holmes wrote and directed their own material. In fact, Holmes said, if I want really thrilly action, I have to write it myself. Right? <laughs> In other words, if, you know, I am I can push the boundaries of what women can do on screen. And these, these films, for me, settle 100 years ago a debate that we're still having today, which is, you know, can um, 
women directors direct action films? Can female stars carry an action picture? Will people come to see action adventure films with female leads? Yes, yes, and yes. Settled <laughs> years ago. Why are we still debating this? Um, and when you see the films are really extraordinary. They have such velocity and such speed and such excitement. They're they're really exciting to watch. And the physical stunts are mind-boggling. Um, and, and so they have a real sense, I think, of um, not just the kind of action-adventure hero that women can have, but but the possibilities of cinema in this era, you know, the, the kind of speed and velocity and action and physicality that, that film can capture, um, the moving camera work, the, the bodies moving through space, the, the, the machinery moving through space. Um, it's, really, it's an extraordinary vision of cinema um, that are in these action-adventure serials. And I think they really hold up. You know, sometimes people ask me, you know, well, for people that don't know silent film very well, you know, what would you recommend that they start with from this set? And I always say, you know, the comedies, the Mabel Norman comedies and the action adventure serials are a great way in, you know, because they're just, they hold up a hundred years later. They're, they're, the comedies are still funny. The action adventures are still thrilling. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, not that I've seen a lot of these serials, but there is kind of a typical action uh, sort of paradigm for these things, which is kind of centered around railroads. Mm -hmm. And it all makes sense. I mean, what's the one kind of big action you can have in a small town? Well, the railroad goes through and somebody has to work at the the station and somebody has to be the station master so he can have a daughter. And there you go. Your plot is going. Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely. So it all all kind of makes sense. And then the only other thing you need is a vice president of the railroad with a mustache who has evil designs (laughs) on the daughter. Well, and the other thing that that all the 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 gimmick that that almost always um, makes the Hazards of Helen serials go is that there's she's always underestimated. You know, every episode they say you can't do it. No, you're not going to be able to stop the train, or you're not going to be able to foil those robbers. And so she always has to kind of fight against expectations, uh, which is a great. So every every episode, she's uh, she's thwarting expectations and doing the unexpected, and um, and saving the day in a way that the male characters can't. So it's great. It's a great kind of um, uh, trope. Right, and she doesn't have to do it in a, in a halter top like Charlie's Angels fifty <laughs> years later either. Right. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So then we have two discs called Social Commentary, uh, notably in- including uh, Lois Weber's Where Are My Children, which you know, is a fairly famous film. Uh, but the one that I thought was really interesting, there's one called The Curse of Quan Guan, When the Far East Mingles with the West, directed by Marion Wong. What is that? Yes. So um, The Curse of Quan Guan is the first film made by an Asian American filmmaker with an entirely Asian American cast, right? Um, Marion Wong set up a film production company in Oakland, California, the Mandarin Film Company in Oakland, California. And so she's an example. There's several filmmakers on this set who are not working in Hollywood, who are working outside of Hollywood, who have set up their own production company. So there's um, Marion Wong in... Oakland. There is uh, Angela Marie Gibson, an amateur filmmaker working in uh, North Dakota. And there is Nell Shipman, who is working in um, Northern Idaho, Priest Lake, Idaho. Um, so they're, they're working in, a, in, in, their, in different ways outside the system, um, both amateur filmmaking and commercial filmmaking. Um, Wong is particularly interesting because of this ambition she had, right, to, to um, make um, the first uh, Asian American film. Um, it does not survive in its entirety, but we have the surviving bits of it. Um, Quite a lot. Say, I mean, 35 yeah, minutes. Yeah, well, I should say bits. <laughs> we, we have a considerable amount of The Curse of Quan Guan. And it is um, a film that looks at transcultural identity, right? It's a film about um, being Asian American in the early decades of the 20th century, uh, and being an Asian American woman in the early decades of the 20th century, and dealing with um, 
gendered expectations, dealing with cultural expectations around um, marriage, around childbearing. So it's a really interesting film. It's unfortunately the only film that Wong ever made. Uh, I, it would be fantastic to sort of think about what else she might have been able to do um, with the, the Mandarin Film Company, um, because it's really a kind of extraordinary film for its time. It's really extraordinary, um, extraordinarily far thinking. And it really does, you know, it's part of um, uh, a series of films that uh, Asian American filmmakers were making. So she, you know, Seso Hayakawa uh, is making, beginning to set up his, his own production company and beginning to make films during this era as well. Um, and I think, although Wong never says it in quite this way, um, the Curse of Quang Guan is clearly uh, uh, an answer back to Cecil B. DeMille's The Cheat. Um, and it's a, clearly a way of thinking much more broadly about Asian American identity beyond the, the racist stereotypes that, that um, DeMille propagates in The Cheat. So it's a really, really interesting film, um, both, both in, as an example of early Asian American filmmaking, but also as an example of what can be done outside of Hollywood, um, you know, in one's own production company. Now, a lot of the films deal with something that it's not surprising to see turn up as a uh, woman-oriented topic, which is motherhood and childhood. Yes, um, yes. The, the best-known one, again, Where Are My Children, Lois Weber film, which is kind of surprising in that it's kind of anti-abortion, uh, but takes it as essentially just a fact of life, uh, which certainly would not be true in Hollywood for you know, half a century. Um, there's one called, which I've not seen, called Motherhood, Life's Greatest Miracle, directed by Lita Lawrence. And there's just various other films throughout that, you know, talk about that aspect of womanhood in a way that, you know, tends to get passed off in, you know, male-driven, male-directed films as, you know, oh, isn't that a lovely thing that just happened? Mothers are... It's wonderful. Now let's move on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, Where Are My Children is really an extraordinary film, as you say. Um, it, it, you know, in the sense that it's it's a film made in 1916 about birth control and abortion during a time when um, contraception was not legal. Um, and, and what astounds people about Where Are My Children is that you know, in 1916, a film about birth control and abortion written and directed by a woman was Universal's top moneymaker. Right. So, yeah. you know, we can't, 100 years later, we cannot imagine Universal greenlighting a film on abortion and birth control written and directed by a woman, let alone, you know, that it would be their top moneymaker. Like, it's just a sort of um, almost impossible to imagine. But as you say, the the politics of the film are are not the feminist politics many of us might have today, right? It's a film that's really steeped in eugenics discourse of that moment. So what it does is in order to make a case for legal contraception, um, it vilifies abortion. And in particular, it vilifies a sort of group of wealthy white women who are, as the film says, avoiding motherhood, by having repeated abortions, it vilifies those women in order to make a case for legal contraception for um, poorer women um, who who the film argues you know need to be able to control fertility because they don't because they live uh, they don't they live in poverty and they can't support a large family or they live in violent households where it's not safe for children to be or they live in impoverished neighborhoods where their children are um, susceptible to um, illness and disease so the film makes a very clear case for legal contraception but only for certain segments of the population right so it's really steeped in eugenics discourse at that time and and you know as i said the the politics of the film are really um not what many feminists would argue now around reproductive politics. Nonetheless, it's, it's still incredibly interesting to see um, Lois Weber's take on these issues from, from 1916. Um, and as you say, there's, there's other films in the set that deal with motherhood and that deal with um, children. You know, Where Are My Children is, is not so much about 
children. But there's all kinds of films also that I think are really interesting because they they focus on children. So um, Angela Marie Gibson's amateur film, That Ice Ticket, features child performers. Uh, Lula Warrington's When Little Indy Sang, again, is about children and features um, extraordinary performance by uh, an African-American actress, a young child. Um, the Dream Lady, Elsie Jane Wilson's film, is about a young woman who, her, her sort of childhood wish is to, or she, she she's able to grant other people wishes and she grants uh, a young girl uh, a desire to, her wish to be a man, to live as a man. Um, and so there's, and many of Alice Guy films focus on children as well. So there's a kind of interesting thread, I think, films that deal with motherhood uh, and films that deal with uh, childhood, particularly um, little girls, not always, but but often um, little girls and, and young women. So that's another really interesting thread. And The Curse of Quan Guan that I talked about a minute ago is also about motherhood as well, right? Um, so that that is, I think, a really interesting thread in in this in the, that kind of runs across many of the films and on the different discs. All right, so the, the entire set is silent, correct? It's yes, all silent films. So by sound, essentially, the era of women directors was over. I mean, really, by the early twenties, to judge by the titles, it's nearly over. Um, Dorothy Davenport, Mrs. Wallace Reed is is kind of the only one who has a film from that late in the decade. You know, it's usually seen as, well, you know, women didn't have any control in Hollywood anymore. Well, to a certain extent, there were women who were enormously powerful in Hollywood. If you were Norma Shearer, Betty Davis, or Katharine Hepburn, you had a lot of control over what sort of material was being shaped for you. Uh, still, that's not the same as being the director uh, there were some women writers, but that wasn't always, I would say, probably the proportion went down in that category, too. What happened? <laughs> Where, where'd yeah. they go? Exactly. Great question. Yeah, because this this set, as you say, um, it focuses on the silent era. But what it what it really does is highlight uh, a, a window of opportunity within the silent era um, from the early 1910s through the early 20s. Um, when there were incredible opportunities for women in filmmaking. And, you know, as I said, in Hollywood and outside of Hollywood, incredible opportunities for women in filmmaking. What happened? Absolutely, what happened? I think there's a bunch of things that happen in the early 20s that make it very difficult for um, female filmmakers. So there is um, a consolidation of power in the late teens and early 20s, um, where um, uh, studios whose names still dominate the entertainment landscape today consolidate power by buying up theater chains. And it becomes very difficult for independent production companies or independently owned production companies to distribute films um, so that's one way in which some of the independent production companies that women had found it increasingly hard to distribute their work. Um, and the studios, in order to do this, um, borrow a lot of money from Wall Street. And um, Karen Ward-Mahar, the film historian Karen Ward-Mahar, really makes, I think, a very compelling argument that what happens when the studios borrow money to... Um, buy these theater chains to consolidate their power is they also buy into a kind of male corporate culture that's dominating in the 20s. And so she talks about this period as a kind of remasculinization of the American film industry, right? And so it's not just that it's harder for women who are working independently to get distribution in this landscape that's controlled by the studios. It's also the studios are also unwilling to hire women because they've bought into this idea that in order to be a legitimate corporation, you have to be male run and male dominated. And that's Karen Ward Mahar's argument. And I think she's right. Um, so there's a lot that's happening in the um, in the early 20s to really shut out um, female filmmakers and also uh, many of the African American filmmakers and, and African-American film production companies that had started in the same period are also getting shut out in the same period. Um, 
so so it's a it's a it happens very swiftly um, and it happens very decisively, as you say. Um, you know, there there are women that continue to make films um, in the the late twenties and into the early thirties. So uh, Weber continues to make films uh, in the late twenties. She makes she does make a sound film, her last film in nineteen thirty four. Um, Dorothy Arzner is beginning her career as a director in the late twenties with silent films, and then moves into sound. But by the thirties, Arzner is the only female director in Hollywood. Uh, and she's the only director through the early 40s when she quits. And then Ida Lupino is the only woman directing films in Hollywood in the late 40s and into the 50s and, and early 60s. So, you know, what at one point was many, many women making films in Hollywood, um, Universal released almost 200 films directed by women in the 1910s. That's amazing. And that's just over by uh, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? Uh, it's just over. And um, so, so you know, this this set documents really an exceptional period in American film history, a period that should have been the norm, <laughs> but it's, a, it's an exceptional period. And it's forgotten. You know, women, um, I think it's important for female filmmakers who are working now to understand that 100 years ago, there were many, many women making many, many different kinds of films in the industry. And the idea that female directors are rare or that female directors are one of a kind is a myth that we've told ourselves. It wasn't true 100 years ago. Pioneers First Women Filmmakers is out November 20th from Kino Lorber. We'll have links and some clips from it in the show post at nitrateville.com. Michael Gebert's podcast is an absolute treasure, a necessity for anyone who treasures cinema. This is my favorite podcast interesting guests doing innovative things to preserve and present classic film. If you're an old soul who loves classic films and filmmaking, then this is the podcast for you. These are some of the things that people have said in reviews of Nitrateville Radio at iTunes. And when it's a late night and I'm facing trimming all the ums and you knows out of a 45-minute conversation, they're what give me the strength to keep making this podcast knowing that people like you will find it worth listening to. So if you want to, you know, keep me going before I, um, plots, log into iTunes and leave a review of your own. Besides encouraging me, it helps others discover Nitrateville Radio too. So do it today when you're done listening to this episode. Thanks. One of the archives that helped find and restore titles for the Pioneer's First Woman Filmmaker set was the Library of Congress. And at Capitol Fest in Rome, New York last August, they showed a number of titles that the library had contributed to the set, along with some that hadn't made the cut for one reason or another. George Williman, Nitrate Film Vault Manager for the library, introduced some of these films at the festival and I had a chance to talk with him about how an archive participates in a project like this. We spoke in the dealer room at Capitol Fest, home to a notably squeaky chair in the background. Well, we were approached by uh, Kino Lorber, with whom we've uh, in the past few years gotten a really close relationship, and um, they were looking through our collections and finding that we had a lot of silent features and shorts by notable women film directors and actually some completely forgotten women film directors. So they started uh, asking us to produce uh, new digital versions of these for inclusion in this coming uh, DVD Blu-ray set. 
So tell me about what like some of the things that you. Oh. Well, we of course, you know, have a, some of the major women directors like Lois Weber and Alski Blachet. Um, we have, I believe, one of the largest single collections of. of Alice Guy's material, and we supplied a, a handful of her shorts. Um, we actually went through and tried to get them back into uh, looking as close as, as close as they did when they were new. Um, so to the point of recreating um, our title cards in the beginning, which were a very standard Solax card, and uh, redoing some of the inner titles when they were really badly damaged, trying to do them in the style that they were originally created. Um, with Lois Weber, although a few of her, she's pretty well known as a woman film director, there were some of the films that had been seen but had not been seen with the original tints. And as we discovered with, with Ms. Weber, color was very, very important to her and it was an emotional effect that she added to her films. I'll give you an example is uh, Where Are My Children, which was on one of the treasures from the film archive set. We've gone back and actually scanned directly from the surviving nitrate print that we have, and then where it was missing footage, we used the material that came from Europe. So we, we took the nitrate, we scanned the nitrate and scanned the safety material, and then we went back and we tinted the safety material, which was black and white, to match the original tints that were found in the nitrate print. Um, the other thing we were able to do, and this made a big difference, um, there was a piece of 16 millimeter footage that had to be used, and originally, in the, back in the, the first time around, they actually blew up the 16 to 35 and put it in, so it got really grainy. They went back this time and scanned the 16 at 2K like everything else, and we were able to drop it in, and you can hardly tell the difference. I mean, it's really short anyways, but it looks so much better than it did originally. Um, we also redid the... Um, the intertitles for the second half of the movie uh, in the matching font from the first half of the movie. Oh. <laughs> so it looks, it looks, I can't wait for people to see it. It looks really spectacular. The other one, same likewise, um, Alski's, not Alski, excuse me, Los Weber's Hypocrites. Um, it, of course, has been available too, but we've gone back. Um, we actually were able to borrow a negative from the uh, National Film Sound Archive in Canberra that they had made of the original nitrate they had that captured all the color information. So it'll now have all of its tints and tones and everything. Plus, an added attraction, it'll now be in the right order. As we were working on it, we discovered, because it didn't play well. You know, we get to know Lois Weber from all the stuff we're working on, and this one doesn't work. It's very clumsy. It's very awkward. And so we said, there's something wrong with this. And I actually, this was, for me, a big became a big deal. I was at home mowing the lawn going, what is wrong with hypocrites? And finally it hit me, and I went in the following Monday, and I talked to my uh, cohort, uh, Lynn Ann Schweigofer, and I said, what if we took real three and made it real one? And so we did, and all of a sudden, bam, it worked. But then we said, okay, now how we gotta, we got to justify this. And we found a review in one of the journals from the time with a synopsis that was the exact order that we had just put it in. Uh, and boy, it's a totally different movie. It plays so much better now. So again, I can't wait for yeah, people to see that. Yeah, you know, seeing shoes for the first time recently, mm -hmm. I mean, we're all prepared to accept a certain roughness in teens' films. Right. But that's a very precise film, and it all develops, you know, in a mm -hmm. pretty controlled manner, so you don't expect her work to be sort of scattershot that No, way. no, and, and like I said... And that's what I think that's what hit us because we had worked on like four or five of her things already, some of her other features, and and shorts and yeah, and hypocrites just wasn't wasn't clicking, and I'd never noticed it before. I mean, I'd seen it a couple of years ago, and I have the original uh, Kino DVD, and I said, well, it's a nineteen fourteen feature. They just didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, what else? Well, a couple of the other directors like Ida Mae Park. We have one of her films. Uh, and who is she? Tell me about Ida Mae Park. I don't know a whole lot about her, but she was, uh, I believe she was at Universal. Um, I think she did some screenwriting, but she directed a few things. Um, I think 4917, is it 4917? No. There's so many of them, I get them all confused. Right. I don't remember which one of hers. I'm very embarrassed. Um, one of our other favorites, uh, Julia Carpenter-Ivers, uh, who worked a lot with... Um, and his name has gone away too. The director who was who was assassin, who was killed, the real famous director who was killed. Yeah. Oh, Thomas Sands. Okay. No, no, not Thomas Sands. Oh no. It's not the guy who was killed at Sea League by the. No, by crazy the crazy gardener. No, yeah. Boggs. That's not Boggs. 
It's, uh, yes, hopefully we can edit this in post. No, I think it's kind uh, of fascinating as we try to reel off directors. Who yeah. Uh, oh, crap. Oh, William, Desmond Taylor. William Desmond Taylor. Okay. Yes. Here so, we are coming up with Francis geez. Boggs and not yeah. William Desmond Taylor. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> um, no, yeah, she did it. She wrote a lot of stuff for William Desmond Taylor, but she also directed a, a handful of features on her own, and we have at least two of those on there. And one of them is being shown tomorrow called The Cumberlands. Those are really interesting because those were from negatives. I mean, this is from the original negative that was found in Hobart Bosworth's garage. <laughs> at least part of it was. Some of the films in Hobart Bosworth's garage got stolen at some point and over a series of years ended up in another collection. Not not the person who stole them, but someone else who just, you know, you know how these things yeah. go, right? And, David and he got Bradley. These, no, it wasn't. No, I don't remember what the name was. I know that, that we have them now. They're under the... Well, part of them are under the Bosworth collection and another part this other name, which I don't recall. But uh, we find, like, you know, reels one and four and five in one collection and reels two and three in the other collection. And uh, what was really interesting about them, they're all in color, too, because the material we had still had all of the tinting orders in the material, and the material was in tinting order. Okay. So as it stood, it was not watchable. So we had the double interesting job of taking the material, putting it back in proper order, and then following the tinting instructions and adding the tinting to it. All right, we've kind of gotten to one of the questions I was going to ask, which okay. is, where did all this stuff come from? How did you happen to, I mean, we know that like Universal has a really poor survival rate, right. but you seem to have a lot of Weber films. So how, how did, where is all this material from? Private collectors. Okay. Uh, much of it is from private collectors. Uh, much of what we were doing was gathered back in the 70s under the auspices of the AFI, back when they were interested in preserving film. And uh, these were the ones where they, they got people like David Shepard to scour the countryside looking for collectors and knocking on their doors and getting them to, to let us have their film. So, and, that, and they've been sitting in our vaults, both you know, originally in Dayton, Ohio, and now, now in Culpeper, um, just waiting for this day. <laughs> and the thing that's interesting is so many of the things that we're doing had been preserved prior to this in the 70s and 80s uh, in black and white. Um, but with the ability that we have now with the new machine, this, this uh, uh, laser graphic scan station, which is just, it's a godsend for us because now they can go back to the original nitrates, which look so much better than the copies that were done in the 70s, you know, when they were just, they were just copying stuff just to have it. It's like there was no uh, thought at the time. time. Yeah, there was, there was no thought at the time of really presenting these. They just wanted them as a library, yeah. as things that people could access. Uh, so they're, they're okay. I mean, sometimes, yeah, we have to use that because that's all that survives. But in, in a couple cases, we were able to go back to the nitrates, and the difference was striking. Um, one of the ones that's going to be on the set, which is a really late edition, is a little universal called When Little Lindy Sang. And we got a scan of the, the copy that was made in the 70s, and it's okay, but it was making my eyes water because it, so, it was just blurry the way it was done. So I'm like, wow, I wonder if we still have the nitrate on this. So we looked it up, and yes, we did. And it's one of the films from Dawson City. Uh, so it was one of those buried under the ice rink all those years. So we get it out, and we roll through it. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous print. Got some water damage on the edge like they all do. We're just astonished. So we asked to have that one scanned. We also found that there's a fire scene in it, and the fire scene was tinted bright red. So we were able to put that back the right way. But the difference was, in it, there's a little girl named Lindy, and, and she is picked on, and she, she's crying. And we didn't notice until we got the new scan that you could see the tears running down her face, yeah. which you could not see in the old one. So this one, is suddenly, it's, it's become one of our favorites. They're all our favorites. Right. They're like little children. You send them out and hope people like them. Well, you know, <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's, that's so wonderful. You know, people will say, "Ah, oh, you don't need to see these in Blu-ray. You don't need to, see, you know, it's it's a comedy. You laugh or you don't." Mm -hmm. But detail matters so much. I was, you just the one we just watched, the circus, circus of life, circus of life. Just seeing like storefronts in the background. Oh and yes, like and that. there's one when a cop goes to the uh, when the detective goes to call about Cassidy. If you look in the background, there's a movie house with these humongous posters out yeah. front. We stopped and we tried to read what they were, I and mean, you could kind of see what they were. They're these big, beautiful posters. But yeah, Circumstances Life was one of our favorites. We yeah, worked, tell me about that. We worked so hard on that. The print we had, of course, was only three reels. Uh, the titles were all in Dutch. 
And um, as we're going through it, there's a big, you know, big chunk missing, two reels are missing from it. And as we worked on it, we realized that the two reels didn't seem to be lost because there's a title there that the, the Dutch had put in to kind of fill the gap in. And we, and we found contemporary reviews that said, yeah, this movie's kind of boring until Zoe Ray shows up and then it gets really interesting. So we actually think the distributor actually did that. They cut out most of reels two and three just to you know get the film started get little Zoe Ray out on the screen because that's focus what people on the see. child yeah. star the only problem is that yeah there's a couple of characters that are kind of left kind of aloof and you're not totally sure why they're there there's a, I think there's a one character who's like a, a, a parole officer for Tommy you see him there at the end and I'm sure there's something more about Cassidy why he is involved in this you know what, they, what, what he was and what kind of a crook he was and we know we've seen some pictures where uh uh, Palmari Cannon beats up on the artist a little more, yeah. which was very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> but that one's not going to be in the set. At right now, it's not. That's why I was telling people, if you like Circus of Life, because this is the first audience to see Circus of Life, if you liked it, please write to Kino and tell him to put it on there. <laughs> Eventually, it will be out. We said, even if they don't use it, we'll find, a, we'll find someone to put it out. Cause okay, so it's... And it was directed by... Elsie Jane Wilson. Well, she's a female star, but she was also Mrs. Rupert Julian. Well, and that's what someone... I, yeah, Eric and there's... Cohen, a, there's. I was just talking to, was saying how much it looks like a Rupert Julian movie. Yes. Um, and there is some controversy, I guess, and uh, maybe this is why it's not on there also, about whether Julian was more the director and Elsie Jane was just in it, or if they shared duties, or if this was her maybe getting... A little more into it. I haven't seen enough of her movies to really tell. That's yeah, the first to, one. to tell who the auteur is in yeah. this one. Yeah, but it's a nice little film. I really and I really like Zoe Ray. She's yeah. and, and I, I I know a few more of her things survive, but uh, of course I haven't seen them. Yeah, it was a nice you know the the smile and a tear school of melodrama yeah. with the child star who solves all the adults' problems. Yeah. you know, and totally totally charming. Yeah, and she is very she's not cloying or kind of gooey child star. Yeah, no, well directed that yeah. she. I mean, she can play to the audience, but she doesn't overdo it, or they don't let her overdo it. Right. So, yeah, no, nicely done. Now, one of the fun things we had, if we have any time left, I don't want to run out of time. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's a podcast. <laughs> we got nothing but time. Oh, that's right. Um, on that one, of course, we had, to, we had to do English translations of all the titles because they're in Dutch. So we go through, and, and we're using Google Translate to translate because neither of us knows Dutch. Right. Um, <laughs> And we had nothing else to go on. There's no script. There's no continuities. There's nothing. There's a copyright entry, which is like two paragraphs, which was also the ad that showed up in the Universal Weekly and blah, blah, blah. So that's all we had. Um, so we, we would start with a literal translation. And then we would have to think, okay, this is 1914 or whatever year it is. No, 1917. It's like, how would they have said this? So we're, and we worked really hard on these titles. There are several of them. And I'm watching them. I go, oh, yeah, we had to redo that one like three times. Because, we, again, we're working so hard to make sure that we don't throw the audience out of it by our, by our changes. But some of the things in there, like the little Circus of Life logo that you saw, on so that is from an original Circus of Life ad that was in the magazine. We saw that. And another film that, of Elsie Jane's that is on the set, The Cricket, of which only like four minutes survived, the titles in Circus of Life, we based kind of on what they looked like in the cricket. Okay. So, and all the artwork in the opening credits was all from uh, butterfly ads that were in the different magazines. So I just kind of worked them to try and give people a really nice, nice whole experience. As butterfly was a production company. Yes, it was part of Universal. Okay. Didn't last very long. Uh, we did find that uh, contemporary reviews from theater owners saying nobody likes these butterfly films; they don't come to them. So I think Butterfly only lasted about a year and a half. Huh. But I, I thought they were nice little films. They weren't shoot 'em ups, and they weren't gangster pictures. Yeah. They're all very kind of nice little stories like this. I think so. Yeah. Special audience for that. All right. Anything else that you're working on that's special and cool right um, now? Let's see. Um, working on in kind of in cahoots with uh, with Undercrank Productions and and Ben Modell. We are uh, working a bit on an Alice Howell right. uh, DVD. Those are those are going to be those be really great. Those are really hard. Poor Alice Howell. I don't think a single one of her films has survived unscathed. The ones that we have. I mean, there was one I worked on. There's one called Distilled Love, which is insane two-reeler and it was like a patchwork quilt i mean it's got 
bits and we had two prints but we had to make several passes on one because it was so badly damaged and vinegar syndrome shrunken nasty um and so this thing is just a patchwork quilt of bits and pieces and hopefully our our, our great lab guys can grade it out so that it looks a little more more better yeah <laughs> and uh but no that's gonna be a great set because you know, it will actually probably be out before the the women filmmakers one in no. Maybe not? No. I don't okay. think so. I All right, it's still in so. the future, future Night Revolution. Still in the future, still in the future, but but coming soon. And, of course, the the uh, Kinetophone, Kinetophone DVD is now out. Right. Uh, very excited about that. That was, to date, that is still the favorite thing I ever worked on. Yeah. I saw those here two years ago. Yes. And they're just kind of, they're spooky. They are. They're ghostly. It is truly, you know, all film is, you know, the past coming back. Yeah. But those really feel like well, and the voices is, from, the, from yeah. the dead. And for me, it's like, it's like looking at a film that looks all the world like a silent film. And, and you expect yourself to and then suddenly they start talking. It. And it's like, and I, I was telling somebody else, the first time I ever got one of those synced up right and it was working all the way, there was nobody around. There was <laughs> nobody around. And I was like, hey, Watson, come here. Look, I need you. Exactly. And I, I, uh, so, anyways, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else coming down the pike. There's lots of things. Some that are things that I don't even know about. But I know that with Kino uh, in the offing, there is a a Vitagraph comedy set. There is, we're starting to work on another Laurel or Hardy set uh, with some riches that have recently come come into the place. And anything else? Um. Uh, the, the long-awaited Blu-ray of Ramona may be out this year sometime. <laughs> okay. We're hoping to see that soon. Uh, that's all I can think of right off. Okay. And it's just all in a day's work for you guys, taking bits and pieces of things people haven't seen for a century and, and, it is, and if you, putting it back together. If you told me when I, I, st- I started with the library like 34 years ago, and if you told me that I would get to do this, I would have said you were crazy. But it has been, it's, for me, it's been a joy to do this stuff and to work with all the all the great people we have there. I mean, our laboratory guys are amazing. The, the, the magic that they can do and the little things that the little bits that we've been in. I mean, our job is putting it together, and there's a certain level of, you know, having watched a lot of movies to know what you're doing. But oh, I mean, on on Circle of Life and on the the too many kisses that we showed that they showed yesterday, that that was an unshowable print. And, and it, it looked pretty blast. darn good. It looked pretty darn That's good. That's a funny movie. Too. Yeah, no, it's it's exactly the sort of thing you want to see at a festival like yeah. this because everybody will have a good time. Yeah, and and there's more like that. Our, our guys are working. They're even working sort of developing some new ways of trying to free up nitrate that has stuck together because that's still a big problem. I mean, it's, it's very hard to to get it unstuck without destroying it. Without yeah. destroying it, yeah. So that's it. Plenty to come. Lent you to come. All right. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks to my guests, Shelley Stamp and George Williman, and to Capital Fest. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And again, help us all out by leaving a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I'll be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Thanks.